I invite you to join me this morning in the book of Hebrews, the first chapter, Hebrews 1. We'll be reading verses 5 through 14 here in just a moment. One of the things that uh, I want to quickly mention, we've not talked about this a great deal, and I was afraid it might be a bit confusing earlier in the announcements. In cooperation with the Way and Redeemer uh, leadership there, we are offering the thing we're calling the uh, Spurgeon League, and it is an opportunity for men who would like to improve preaching, teaching skills, especially preaching skills, to have a, um, some training. It'll be a one-day seminar on a Saturday, the 16th of uh, September here at Boulevard. It'll run from about 9 to 1 or so. And after that, it'll be broken into groups where you'll actually have an opportunity to practice what you've learned. And uh, it is at the astonishingly low price of $15, which basically covers a couple of books for you and some other things. But if you're interested in that, men, I would encourage you, those of you that would like to learn to preach or curious about it, have interest, uh, strongly advise you. Talk with me after service or Willis, and we'll have more information about that. But we, one of the great needs, my brothers and sisters, we're seeing this over and over again now, that we are coming up on a shortage of preachers, of pastors. In fact, it's going to reach critical mass uh, in the next decade or so. Uh, average age of pastors in the United States and Protestant churches is above 60. And as men retire, there are not younger men coming along. And whether that becomes a situation of guys who actually feel called into pastoral ministry to take that on, or whether part of the way of bridging that is for men who are willing to preach to help fill pulpits until pastors can be secured, that crisis may well be upon us very shortly. And so this is something that we are cooperating with these other two churches to try to give training and provide a resource for churches who are going to be in great need in years to come. So, that said, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 5, and we'll read through the end of the chapter at verse 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, our Father, by your grace, for your glory, grant that we see and hear and grasp this, your eternal word, by the work of your Spirit. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The subject of angels experienced something of a revival in the latter part of the 20th century. Back in the 70s, Billy Graham wrote a book with the title, Angels, Angels, Angels. You probably can find that in used bookstores if you look about for a while. Then around 1990, Frank Peretti wrote two books, fictional novels, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, took evangelical book buyers by storm, millions of copies sold. The interest in angels extended to those who make no pretense of being Christian. Part of New Age thinking includes the idea of angels who help out humans. There at least were at least two TV series that featured a supposed angel or more. Before that, there was even a movie, Angels in the Outfield, which portrayed angelic beings assisting a woefully hopeless baseball team Personally, I'm not convinced that even divine intervention will assist the Cardinals this year. <clears throat> oh, I just heard somebody say good. I'm wounded. <laughs> I hear and read over and over again where people claim that a deceased loved one is now an angel or has gotten their angel's wings Please, my friend, there is nothing in the text of Scripture which supports this notion. In fact, Paul will say that the glorified saints will one day judge angels. You don't become an angel when you die. You don't get wings. I'm sorry if you're disappointed, but better to disappoint you with the truth. Now, the subject was and is to some extent huge, and apparently it had commercial value. Now, some might think, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it good to get people to think about a spiritual world? And the answer is both yes and no. Certainly, it helps to have folks at least open to speaking of a spiritual realm. But it's also difficult when their views are more fictional than scriptural. The attitude is that angels are somehow basically benevolent, non-judgmental beings, very safe. That's the cultural norm, it seems today. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters has Uncle Screwtape at one point uh, writing, Draw Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later come the chubby, infantile nudes of Raphael. Finally, the soft, slim, girlish, and consolatory angels of 19th century art, 
shapes so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity. That is, they're just dull. They are a pernicious symbol. In Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it's going to say, there, there. Now, the writer of Hebrews is dealing with Jewish believers who are considering going back into Judaism. They're struggling over being Christian. And he, the, the Jewish folk of the day liked the idea of angels, and part of the struggle here was how to think about angels. Certainly the Scripture speaks of angels, and if you look in the Old Testament, there's something like a hundred references to angels. I mean, Old Testament, hundred references. New Testament, about 160. And we have to read these things rightly. And if you look from last week, the fourth verse where we ended, having become as much superior, speaking of Jesus, to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, you read that and you say, okay, so what's going on here? I've never thought of angels as being superior to the Son of God. Well, again, the era. Jews in the first century had come to think of angels as intermediaries between God and men. And here's some of the stuff that was going around. Now, some of this we might endorse, some of it we're not sure about, right? So here's some of the ideas that were going around. There were seven angels called angels of the presence. Raphael, Uriel, Phanozoic, Gabriel, Michael. They were messengers, we would agree with that. 200 other angels controlled the movements of the stars. I'm not sure how they landed on 200, but that was the idea. One angel controlled time. One angel controlled the sea. There were angels of frost, dew, rain, snow, hail, thunder, and lightning. There were angels who controlled hell. There were angels who recorded every word spoken. There were presiding angels for every nation. And every individual had a guardian angel. Now all this angelology was endorsed by groups including the Essenes. We don't read about the Essenes in the New Testament. They were kind of a, a, a almost monastic group off by themselves. But we do know this was in their theology and common. In fact, some have the idea that there were two messiahs, one priestly, the other kingly, who were both going to be subservient to the angel Michael. Now I know, well that just sounds weird. Well, my friend, have you listened to what many claim to believe today? I mean, we cannot for a moment claim 
that there isn't weirdness in much of what's believed about the Lord, about angels, about being Christian. And it appears these Jewish believers were being pressured to make Jesus just another angel or one of these messiahs under angels, and that way they could still be Jews and be accepted. The writer won't allow it. In the text we read just a bit ago, verses 5 to 14, he actually cites seven different Old Testament texts to prove that Jesus is superior to angels. In fact, there's a bit of repetition between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 14. The repetition is an emphasis. Let me show you quickly. In, cha- in verse, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2, he talks about his appointment as a royal heir, the heir of all things. Well, in verses 5 to 9, he's appointed as God's son and heir. Back at the end of verse 2, he's the mediator of creation. At verse 10, he's the mediator of creation. At verse 3, he has an eternal nature and preexistent glory. At verses 11 and 12, an unchanging eternal nature. At verse 3, exaltation to God's right hand. Verse 13, exaltation to God's right hand. What I'm saying is the author of Hebrews has the same driving concepts moving him in both places. He's just doing it in different ways. In the first four verses, he does it by this brilliant demonstration of a a power of language here as he's trying to show the greatness of the Son of God. But at verse 5, he takes up Scripture as his helper and cites Old Testament texts. Now, I know some of you are saying, great, going to get a lecture on people that were stupid about angels and Jesus in the first century. That's got a lot to do with me today. Well, give me a little hint. When you start feeling that way about the text, stop it. But do something else. Back out your view just a little bit. You see, my friend, we may not be tempted to treat angels in the way the first century treated them. But we're all prone, and our era is prone, as every era has been prone, to somehow diminish the superiority, the greatness, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It seems to be very much hardwired into us. And I think it comes out of this. We would really like to have a Savior who's more understandable, who's much more controllable, and doesn't mess with us much. There is always a temptation to make someone or something greater than Jesus. There is always this temptation. Now, I hope to explain that, especially as we get toward the end. But let's see what it is that the author wants us to capture. First of all, 
that as son of God, he has a superior nature. The first two verses, five and six. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The writer is taking his argument, first articulated in the open verses, and applying it very specifically. In fact, I believe last time I mentioned when it says he has a name above the name of the angels, that likely in the Jewish mind, when he said the name, the first place they would go is to the I am text, that I am God, and Jesus is claiming that. But I also think there could be a duality here because the name or the title that shows up over and over again in the next few verses is Son. He is the Son. And there is a uniqueness to Him being the Son. Now, we read these and we think, oh my word, here we go. We're already jumping into Trinitarianism again. And preacher, you did that a few months ago and my head still hurts. Good. Good. Because what we confess is this. He is the Son of God, eternally begotten. Now, the second word we're okay with, begotten. The other word, eternally, we're okay, but we're not sure what to do when you put eternally and begotten together. And what you're doing is trying to reflect what the text of Scripture tells us. In the relations of the Trinity, Father to Son, the Father is unbegotten, for all eternity, the Son is eternally begotten. Well, what does that mean? He's eternally begotten. Well, explain that. I can't. And you can't either. And let me let you on a little hint. When you try, typically you're a heretic. Before you get done talking, when you should have hushed earlier, you're going to find yourself in heresy. The author of Hebrews picks up the sonship theme. This is from Tom Schreiner. Identifying Jesus as the son installed by the father as the messianic king. The reference is to the eternal beget, is really not at this point, the eternal begetting of the son by the father. In fact, it refers here to the reign of the messianic king, which Hebrews sees as commencing at Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Jesus is greater than angels because he now reigns as the messianic king. He is the son of God. The quotes here, Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 2 Samuel 7, 14, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then Deuteronomy 32, let all God's angels worship him. All of these quotations are to show us the superiority, the superior nature of Jesus. He is this God in the flesh. He comes as the Son. He is birthed. He is born. The incarnation is real. But the birth is not the beginning of his existence any more than the moment of him being begotten in Mary's womb is the beginning of his existence. The Son of God has always been. Eternality. He is sent by the Father 
and he demonstrates that relationship, right? The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. The Son obeys the Father and seeks to glorify the Father. The Father will say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And folks, what do the angels have to do with that? Well, he never said to an angel, you're my son, today I've begotten you. He never said, I, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And besides, it says of his firstborn, let all God's angels worship him. And folks, what do you see when you look in the New Testament? Now, Adam, we all caught that, you know. That it, it's not just that Nathan wanted to throw a Christmas carol in, in the end of August just to mess with you. Personally, I could sing Christmas carols all year long, but I also enjoy doing them because they're special as we celebrate the Incarnation. But it is an echo of what we're talking about today. The angels sing of him. The angels interrupt time, break in under the direction of the Father. We looked at it this last week as we were looking in the Gospel of Luke, and Pastor Willis was teaching us about that. And you think about those those wondrous shepherds out there, grubby, scruffy, bottom of the social ladder. I'm telling you, nobody in Bethlehem or Jerusalem ever invited shepherds to their parties. You just didn't do that. They were the bottom of the social ladder. And out there, a bunch of fellows taking care of sheep. It's dark. It's quiet. It is dull work. And suddenly, glory breaks in. <laughs> With angelic announcement, if that wasn't enough, the glory breaks even bigger. And a number of angels begin declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Or you look at the book of Revelation where we're told as they see the Son of God, the Lamb of God, by the throne of God. And you hear around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Angels worship the Son when he is exalted as the messianic king. Angels then serve him. He is superior in nature. Part two, he's superior in position as king overall, verses seven, eight, and nine. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Angels are messengers and servants, clearly subservient to the Son, because he is the king. When he says he makes his messengers, wins his uh, ministers of flaming fire, that's from the 104th Psalm, verse 4, he's not trying to do a literal identification. Not every wind you feel is angels. And when you light a fire, that flame is not an angel. The imagery here is a twofold thing. One is there's a power in the wind and there's a power in flame that tends to humble humanity. Right? We've known what wind can do. 
We've seen the disasters created. We see what fire can do. It is frightening when it's out of control. But further, it is a mark they are created things. As the wind and the fire serve God, so angels serve Him as well. They are created. The quotes from the 45th Psalm, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever. As He talks about the Lord reigning, your scepter, you've loved righteousness. And he applies this, the author does, to the Son. This is a royal psalm penned in honor of the kings of Israel. And he says of them, of the angels, they serve him because he is enthroned. Now look at the terms here. Verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And look at verse 9. He has anointed you. Now work backwards. What does the word Messiah literally mean? Or Christos, anointed one, king. He is the anointed of the Lord. He has a scepter. He reigns. He is on a throne. He reigns. The throne, the, the Son has thrown scepter and an anointing. The Son is king. Angels serve him. Third, superior life. As creator of all. Verses 10 to 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you will remain, and I love this imagery here, they will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now remember, the author is writing this about Jesus Christ. He is greater because he is the creator, because he is eternal in contrast to the world he created, which is temporal. As a man outlives several suits of clothes, the Son of God can outlive universes. I don't know. Any ever wear something until you wore it out? In our era, that doesn't seem to happen too often. We move on. You know, there's a whole host of reasons. We either discover that, um, well, it's usually not the dryer that has shrunk my clothes, it's the refrigerator. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's occasions we have things that we wear long enough to wear them out right have you ever pondered that in the lord's eyes the stars the planets the very created universe is as temporary to him <laughs> as that last pair of jeans you bought are to you and he can roll it up the same way you roll up those worn-out jeans and throw away. This is the Son of God as creator. The angels, though powerful, are temporal. They are created beings. The Son is essentially eternal. He has the power of existence, of being within himself. All right, just make sure you're following me. 
He has a superior nature. He is the Son of God. A superior position as the King over all. A superior life because He is the Creator. That is the source of life. Finally, a superior purpose as the Sovereign over all. Verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has He ever said, now this is in the 110th Psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 110th Psalm, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Now this is the text that Jesus quotes to mess with the, the religious leaders of the day. He said, so you say, the Lord says to my Lord, literally, the Yahweh, or Jehovah, says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So how can he say to the one who reigns, Stay here till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And how can, he be, how can he be the son of the Lord and yet be a Lord himself? Do you see the confusion he's trying to push on them? It's clarity if they get it. But confusion otherwise. What he's saying is this. Christ rules, angels serve. He sits at his right hand as sovereign until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. The emphasis here is on two elements. One is the finished priestly work. We've talked about this before. We'll see it later in the book of Hebrews. But if you ever were to look at it, do a study of the tabernacle, the movable temple, or you studied the temple itself, there's a piece of furniture you don't find. You've got altars. You, you've got a labor, you've got a place for things to be washed, you've got a censer for incense, you've got a table for bread, you've got a lamp for light, you've got the Ark of the Covenant, which represents, if you will, the presence of God, the throne room of God, uh, the footstool for His feet. But what's the piece of furniture that you never find anywhere in either tab tabernacle or temple? Chairs. There's no place to sit down. You know why there's no place to sit down? Because the priest never got done. Every day, from sunup to sundown, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, people bringing their sacrifices, bringing them in, they had a child, bringing them in because they're being cleansed from something, bringing them in because they've sinned. Besides the regular sacrifices that had to go on, Folks, do you understand, when you think about the temple, when you think about the tabernacle, as glorious and beautiful as it was, there was also something horrific about it. Blood. Rivers of blood. Animals sacrificed. And it never stopped until... The Son of God dies on a cross. And the first thing that should get your attention when it comes to the temple, what happens in the temple when he cries out, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit? Okay? The veil, the barrier between God and man, split top to bottom. Symbolism, the way to God is open. And then the author of Hebrews will tell us later 
when he had done this, he sat down. He's done. So there's a priestly element, sacrificial element, but there's also a kingly element because the one who's the sacrifice and the priest is also the king and he sits down to reign. And we live under that reign. Christ rules, angels serve. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Angels minister then to the children of God. Look at how the text ends. It's not that he's going to say that angels don't matter, but look what he says in the 14th verse. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We may not understand all they do, but they serve us for the sake of Christ. Now, folks, be careful here. I'm, I'm not telling you, oh, I've got an angel. I can boss him around. No, no. They don't work for you. They work for him. They minister for you. Well, what all do they do? I don't know. But what wondrous reality, eh? And that's why when, have you, we've talked to this, but whenever people in the scripture see angels, they almost inevitably have a singular reaction. They want to fall down and worship them. Why do they want to fall down and worship them? They are glorious beings in so many ways. They so reflect the holiness of God. They are so above us in that sense that it is stunning to us. And we figure anybody that looks like that, that is what they are, ought to be worshipped. And they look at us like we've lost our minds. Stop it, get up. I'm a creature like you. Whoa. And yet these angels serve us. They care for us. They minister us. I was looking a bit this morning and reminded of stories of, oh, of the Patons, missionaries to the New Hebrides, who knew that they were hated and the natives to whom they were trying to bring the gospel sent their warriors one night to kill them. And they surrounded the compound and then all at once they were gone. And eventually some of them came to faith and one of them said, who were all those men that looked like they were made of light and carried swords all around you. Because they were on top of your hut and they were all around your hut and we were terrified to attack. Or in 1956 during the Mau Mau uprisings in East Africa, a band of roaming Mamas came to the village of Lori, 
surrounded it killed every inhabitant, including women and children, 300 in all. Not more than three miles away was the Rift Valley Academy, a private school where missionary children were being educated. Immediately upon leaving the carnage of Lori, the natives came with spears, bows, and arrows, clubs, and torches to the school with violent intention. In the darkness, lighted torches were seen coming around the school. Soon, there was a complete ring of terrorists around the academy, cutting off all avenues of escape. Shouts and curses could be heard coming from the Maumas. They began to advance on the school, tightening the circle, shouting louder and louder, coming closer, then inexplicably, when they were close enough to throw spears, they stopped. They began retreating and soon were running into the jungle. The army was called out and fortunately captured the entire band of raiders. Later at their trial, the leader was called to the witness stand and the judge questioned him, did you kill all the inhabitants of Lori? He said, yes. Well, why did you not complete the mission? Why didn't you attack the school? And the leader said, we were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in the school, but as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords, and we became afraid and ran to hide. Clyde Taylor, founder of the National Association of Evangelicals, was married an account given. Jim Marstaller tells about his marriage to my grandmother's grandfather's sister. My uncle Charlie was a missionary in the 20s to a headhunting tribe in South America. They were beside a river in the forest, living in a thatched hut. One day late in the afternoon, they noticed a dugout being paddled down the river with only one man in it. Their immediate thought was the warriors were coming to kill them that night. The dugout could hold over 40, and they realized that the man was probably trying to kill them that night. Uncle Clyde and Charlie had a 22 rifle in their hut, and they took it and some ammo out in the tall grass off to the side of the dwelling. They stayed there all night in their own private prayer meeting, expecting that if attacked, They'd fire the gun into the air to frighten the headhunters. Nothing happened that night. They had no trouble with the tribe for the rest of their term there. They were turned home after their term, and it wasn't until nine years later Clyde was able to visit the field, and one day he encountered one of the men from the tribe who had since become a Christian. So he asked him, what happened? The former headhunter said, I remember that night there were 44 of us, and we were coming to set fire to your hut. When we got there and surrounded the hut, we realized we could not attack because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing all around your hut and even on the roof. On the roof. That is why I am a Christian now. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I don't want you to go from this and say, okay, does that mean that every time that there's an opportunity for a Christian to be martyred that an angel intervenes? Obviously not. But my friends, it ought to tell us something. The world is far more alive than we often think. We tend to be naturalists, it seems. And the culture around us assumes that. And I'm here to tell you, my friend, that the Lord God Almighty has sent angels to care for his people. Now, lest you get hung up there and say, well, no, wait a minute, preacher. I thought this was about Jesus being greater than the angels. It is, because they wouldn't be bothering with us if it weren't for the fact that we belong 
to the Lord our God through the Son of God and is the Son of God who reigns over them. Friends, hear me when I say this. This has been something so apparent as I've thought about years of ministry. People are offended by the gospel. They're offended truly by the incarnation. That God couldn't just tell us to act better and we do it. Or that God couldn't just say, well, I'll let it all go. But that it actually required the second person of the Trinity. And understand, that doctrine is meaningless to many of them and an offense because if they can't explain it, it must not be true. And if you haven't noticed, the Lord doesn't spend a lot of time explaining His being. He just declares who He is. That it required the second person of the Trinity to come and take on humanity. There's another mind bender. God doesn't cease to be God, but he begins to be man. Deity, humanity united. Two natures, one person. And his death on the cross, our only hope. We have to believe in him. All of that's offensive, and anything you can make up that isn't that offensive is easier to believe. My friend, never, ever, ever let Jesus become less in your mind and heart than who he is claimed and portrayed to be in the text of Scripture. My friends, some of you aren't Christians today. I know that. Every Sunday when I stand in this place, I know there's people out there who do not truly know Jesus. And here's my declaration to you. Here's my invitation to you. Right there where you are right now, if you'll repent of your sin, acknowledge you're a sinner, confess that's who you are, and ask Jesus to save you, he will. But I'm terrible, I know. I've done horrible, yes you have. In fact, you've done worse than you think you've done. You think you know and you don't. But there is a Savior for you. Christ the Lord. Believe in Him. You'll be saved. Father, may this your word come home to us in might and power this day father forgive the weakness and overcome the weakness of the preacher and the preaching by your spirit may this powerfully bless us may it Cause believers to be encouraged. May it lead us 
to a greater sense of worship and praise and adoration. May we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for those outside of Christ, may this be the day of their salvation. These things are our prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.